Christians didn't invent baptism, or did they? Welcome to the Monday Muse. I'm Lee Benson. If you enjoy any of the content presented here today, you can find more about it on my Substack at This Roman Catholic Life or Substack.com backslash at This Roman Catholic Life. So Monday is the celebration of the baptism of the Lord. And the baptism of the Lord in the new calendar signifies the end of Christmas tide and the beginning of ordinary time. The baptism is certainly a very significant moment in the life of Christ. It signifies the beginning of his public ministry and is a, another form of epiphany or theophany. It's a, a revealing of who Christ is, as the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, and reveals further the identity and mission of Christ. However, I'll be talking about something a little bit different than the readings today. Today, I want to delve into the universal symbolism of water, the pre-Christian understanding of the religious value of water, and the Christian's development of water symbolism. The universal symbolism of water. Water symbolizes the spring and origin, the, the reservoir of all possible existence. It's from water that we understand, that the ancient mind understands, is kind of pre-exists the earth. It's the primordial elements of earthly existence. And it's from the water that pre-exists the earth that all life springs and all life comes forth. And in some sense, all life is sometimes, for different religions, all life is going to return to the water. So there's different symbolisms for our different symbols of water or different actions. One of them is the immersion in water. This symbolizes a kind of a return to or, or a regression in which everything is dissolved, that things are, are broken up, that nothing remains in the act of immersion. On the human level, this immersion in water symbolizes death. At the cosmic level, it's an apocalypse. It's the flood, the deluge. So because nothing remains after the immersion in water, again, the dissolution of all forms, this implies a type of death, but also a form of rebirth. Water is regenerative. It's, it brings forth life. We need water for life. But of course, as we know, too much water brings death. So water symbolism always has this life on one hand and death on the other aspect. It, it's both good for uh, humans and it can also be bad. It can be too much. Deeply embedded in water is this dual aspect. Another symbol for water is universal mother. It's Again, it's the, the primordial source of of all living things. It's from water that man emerges in many ancient traditions, and it's from water that we will all return. It, it's, again, water, as many of us have probably experienced, it's, it, it has the aspect of mother because it can be life-giving, but it can, therefore the good mother, but it can also be the kind of tyrannical or, or the devouring mother in the source of floods that destroys all human life. So it always has this on one hand giving and on the other taking. Now, the church fathers did not fail to explore and expand upon the pre-Christian understanding of water symbolism and water, the value of water. So they take the water symbolism and they enrich the symbolism in many new ways and they give them new meanings and they connect them with particularly the historical existence of Christ. In baptism, the old man dies through immersion and new life is given. Again, the dual aspect of water. 
both that which destroys and brings death, but from death can also bring life, can be a sort a, a spring of, of fruitfulness. So many of the church fathers expand upon this and say that baptism represents a death, burial, life, and resurrection. And these different aspects are seen in, in, in Christ. It's, it's Christ who infuses baptism with the meanings of death, life, and resurrection. On one hand, we see how the interpretations of the Church Fathers fits with a pre-Christian understanding of water, but on the other, they do expand upon the understanding, the pre-Christian understanding of water by connecting it to the historical existence of Jesus Christ. So into water symbolism, they connect it with sacred history. Before that, water symbolism is very much mythical. It, it, it has this, this uh, as Ratzinger would say, in, in a mythical anytime quality. But now Christians come and connect it to the historical event of Christ's baptism and Christ's existence. Baptism takes on also the, the idea of the, the flood motif or the descent into the abyss. Baptism as a descent into the abyss of the waters where Christ, as St. Cyril Jerusalem says, fights the aquatic monsters of the Old Testament and kind of overcomes sin, but they're represented in these monsters. Baptism continues the flood motif, the repetition of the flood that happened in Genesis. St. Justin Martyr says that Christ is the new Noah, emerged victorious from waters to become the head of another race. The flood figures both the descent into the watery depths and baptism. So as the flood destroyed and wiped out wickedness, except for Noah, and the same happens with Christ. Baptism, the Christ's baptism, he goes through the watery depths, but emerges as the head of a new human race, the, as the, the only one who is victorious. So the flood here comes as a, as a, as a type for, the, for baptism. It's, it's the sea of death. It's in which you know, in the baptism or in the flood washed away sinful humanity, and destroyed them. So now the newly baptized descend into the baptismal font and confront the watery dragon in supreme combat and emerge victorious. That's how the church fathers envision it. So the flood returns the world back to its primordial state, but baptism, in a sense, returns the individual back to the state in which Adam and Eve were supposed to have maintained. So to the question, did Christians just steal baptism from the pagans? Mircea Eliade has an intriguing response to this question. Eliade says, we do not say that Judaism or Christianity borrowed these or similar myths and symbols from the religions of neighboring peoples. They had no need to. Judaism inherited both a religious prehistory and a long religious history in which all these things already existed. All that one can call a prehistory of baptism sought the same object, death and resurrection. There can be no question here of borrowings or influences, for such symbols are archetypal and universal. The symbolism of water is the product of an intuition of the cosmos as a unity and of man as a specific mode of being in the cosmos. I think this is very important because a lot of times what we'll see or what Christians will hear is Christians just sort of steal from pagan religions. That There's, there's nothing new from the Bible. They just took from pagan religions. And that's not true for this reason. It's not true because these symbols are common to all human nature. The idea that washing or using water to wash away sins or to, to cleanse oneself spiritually, to be born, to be regenerated, that's not property of any particular 
religion or people. So you would have to find the first person or the first religious group or the first culture or whoever to practice baptism, and they could be the only sole inheritors. Everyone else would have copied them. But the problem is, is this these motifs of baptism and, and ritual cleansings happen so much all over the world with cultures that never had any contact with them. These are archetypal patterns. Baptism is part of an archetypal pattern that, yes, may stem from a common root, but there's no question of borrowing here. Rather, we should look to that which all men have in common in the depths of their soul, to that human nature, which is the same for Christian and non-Christian. If we look even at the revelation given by Christ, he spoke in parables, which used images and symbols that people can understand. He used fundamental human experiences, father, king, sun, light, darkness, living water, fire, all these images. And part of why he did this is what some authors will call the law of correspondence. Human beings must make use of symbols which nature has provided him. Water is one of those symbols. And through water, he seeks to reach a higher plane, to demonstrate or express a higher plane. The common element here in symbolism is that it's built into our nature and it uses things common to all human life. So Christians aren't stealing baptism, they're fulfilling baptism. So I, I would say that it, it's true that ritual cleansings are archetypal and therefore universal and the property of no one. That's not to say that Christians didn't do something unique with it. I think in the revelation of Christ, he takes baptism, the archetypal action of baptism or ritual cleansing, and fulfills it. So with the universality of symbols, church fathers saw the importance of symbols. They saw how symbols were, were this common property of all mankind. This is what St. Justin Martyr gets at when kind of he talks about, in some ways, even someone like Socrates was secretly a Christian, you know, that anyone who lived by the Logos participates in Christianity in some way. So same here, the symbols that are common property belong to Christianity. Christianity comes and, and takes them and baptizes them. I don't know if that's a pun, but takes them and, and incorporates them and says that we've come to fulfill this, that there's these sacred co cosmic rhythms that we can incorporate. Since Christ is the Logos, he's the center of all things and he completes all things, there's no incompatibility here with kind of pre-Christian use and their fulfillment. So for for the church fathers, revelation brought by faith did not destroy pre-Christian meanings to the symbols, but it simply added a new value to them. For the believer, these new meanings, yes, eclipsed the the, the old meanings. It still kind of retained its its core truth, but just kind of transfigured to the level of revelation. So going to talk a little bit about baptism and theology, and I won't get too much into the, the feast of the day in particular, but think it's important to get into. The pre-Christian understanding of water, or, or just water imagery or symbolism in general, has this idea of dissolving forms. And that's very true of Christian baptism now. The theology of baptism is that baptism dissolves the old man. It dissolves our, our former essence. In more philosophical language, baptism brings about an ontological change. Ontology, the, the study of being. Your being before and after Baptism is not the same. So your being prior to baptism is dissolved. And what is left, what comes about in its place is a new regenerative person or generated person. Baptism stands as the, the fulfillment of pre-Christian symbolism. Our full understanding of baptism doesn't really come until the cross. 
that's that's when all these other mysteries kind of lock into place and give their full meaning. I think I will talk about the connection between the cross and baptism another time. But today, we'll say that in baptism, or in Christ's baptism, I should say, he takes on the sins of the world. That although Christ himself needed no baptism, keeping the pre-Christian understanding of descent into the waters, Christ is Christ goes down into the depths, and he is mystically loaded with the burden of all of mankind's guilt on his shoulders. He goes down into the depths and takes the place of sinners. In the Gospels, they often talk about how all of Judea, the countryside, everybody was coming to the Jordan River and baptizing. And mystically, this is interpreted as all the sins of the people kind of soaking in the water. And Christ goes down there and soaks in that water while not being, while his soul and his, his human nature not being corrupted by sin, he kind of absorbs sin, takes on the sins of all the people. You know, the, the people are bathing in, in, or being washed in the Jordan. It's every sin imaginable is what the church fathers interpreted as. And so every sin is there and he takes on those sins. In the East, the Eastern church and their icons and iconography, iconographic uh, tradition, the icon of Jesus' baptism depicts the waters as a liquid tomb. So it takes this form of a, a dark cavern, which is also a symbol of Hades or hell or the underworld. So in Christ's descent into the, the watery tomb, he's surrounded on every side by death, by the underworld. And then it's it's is he goes into the watery depths and as church fathers say, he he bounds the strong man. He fights the you know the the powers of of the cosmic waters and of death and takes that onto himself. And then he he emerges out of the water after descending into the inferno, into the watery depths, after winning the combat there, can now go on to the cross where he'll take those captives and free them at the cross. Perhaps another time I'll get into the fact that the water symbolism is also feminine and the cavern imagery is also feminine and what that has to do with Christ's masculinity encountering the feminine. That's for another time. But for now, I'll close it there. Again, if you enjoy any of this content, you can find more about it on my Substack at This Roman Catholic Life. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.